Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to another Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. We've become accustomed to alarming stories about climate change, but one in particular cut through this week, the astonishing heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. Vancouver has just experienced record temperatures for three straight days, reaching 49.6 Celsius or 121.4 Fahrenheit in midweek. The heat has killed dozens of people in Canada. In Portland, power cables are melting and a hospital doctor in Seattle told the Seattle Times that the number of patients arriving with heat stroke was comparable to the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Sometimes it feels like we're at the end of the world, as if climate change is out of control and ordinary people can't do anything about it. But today's guest is a little more optimistic about our prospects of cancelling the climate apocalypse. Alice Bell is a climate campaigner, co-leader of the climate change charity Possible, and former lecturer in the politics of science, communication and technology at Imperial College London. She's just about to publish her book, Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. It's an accessible history of climate change research, which unpacks everything from our fossil fuel addiction to how renewables are far from a 20th century discovery. Alice, thank you for joining us. How are you and where are you? I'm sitting in my offices in Camden, which are completely empty because for social distancing, I'm here on my own. But I'm in our our ramshackle offices for Possible HQ in in North London. Climate stories like Canada that we've been following this week are terrifying, but you're a lot more optimistic uh, in your book and work through the idea that we probably do have the tools to fix this. Why do you think that? Yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily say I am optimistic. Um, I'm not sure if that's the right word. The thing about climate change, uh, that it's not a pass or fail issue. It's not like something terrible happens or like it's game over. Climate change happens by degree, you know, or bits of degree. Uh, you know, we often have numbers like one degree or 1.5 degree or, or, you know, numbers like that. It happens bit by bit on the temperature scale. And as a result, there's, because of that, there's always some more of the world to save. So I think the word optimistic can sometimes sound a bit crass. I mean, particularly at the moment, Today, where we've got lots of news stories of really awful things happening around the world, I don't want to sit here and go, oh, it's all going to be okay, because it's not going to be okay. For many, many people around the world, it really is not okay, and it's not been okay for a long time. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's a disaster and it's all over and there's nothing we can do. There is still so much stuff that we can do to take action on climate change, to protect people from climate change that we've caused and also to stop more climate change from happening and we have you know we've been left an almighty mess by our ancestors in terms of how much uh, carbon dioxide is there up up in the atmosphere about the ways in which we've built our, our way of doing kind of modern life which is so fossil fuel dependent but we have also been left a lot of resources we've been left incredible technologies like solar panels and wind turbines and heat pumps we've been left quite a lot of political resources you know whole organizations like 
Greenpeace, like uh, WWF, like the UNFCCC or group, you know, like the, the talks that are happening in Glasgow in November. There's lots of reasons to feel skeptical about them and feeling like they're not going to do enough. But the fact that they exist is something. And that is something that we should hold on to and think, right, how can we make the most of those talks? How can we make the most of, of all the resources we've been left? And that's where if I'm not optimistic, at least it's what gives me a reason to get up in the morning uh, and gives me some strength and some courage to keep going. Well, I mean, optimism is a very uh, relative concept in, a, yes. in this debate, so that'll, that'll do for now. But um, um, of the areas that you work through in your book, you say that there are, you know, technological areas where we can do things. There are, you know, levers the economy can, you know, work with. There's political solutions. Is there a specific area where you would have more of that guarded optimism, do you think? Is there one where the most concrete work is actually happening? I think there are so many different places where we see the impacts of these different things in different parts of the world. I think if you say, oh, there's really great work being done in you know, offshore wind in the UK, but actually in America, they're only really starting to build offshore wind turbines. Why are you taking so long about this, America? And then similarly, the UK is really behind on, on things like solar and, and insulating our houses. So it's, I think in different spots, you might have, have reasons to go, oh, this, we're doing well on this place. This part of the world is doing well on this or, or this part of the world is doing that. One thing I think with the kind of feelings of optimism, that slippery term, one thing that's a really good example is with renewables. And it's really astounding how much renewables have outperformed even the most optimistic estimates. So you look at kind of a, ideas about how you know people model their ideas of energy futures you know what kind of mix of energy are we going to be using in the future it's something that economists have to do to sort of think about the economy and, and lots of people have done for decades and you know, the most pessimistic kind of anti-renewable people have definitely been proved wrong but even Greenpeace and people who were like really optimistic and everyone was like yeah bless you you just love wind turbines they've even been you know the, the, the machines have even beaten them uh, and that is that's something that's quite exciting and is heartening I think, and as a sign of how, when we really put our minds to it, we we can do quite rapid technological change. We tend, I think, to think of climate science as a relatively new thing. But one of the revelations in your book is that you point out how it's got much deeper roots. So for a sort of lay audience, how long really have we been aware of the human causes of climate change? Because I think the thing I took away from your writing was that it's much longer than we typically think. Yeah, it sometimes surprises people. So the book kind of starts in the 1850s, which is when we had the idea in theory that if the atmosphere was full of carbon dioxide, it could get hot. So that's kind of the building blocks of what we learn at school as the greenhouse effect. We knew that in the 1850s. No one really twigged that we were doing that until a bit later that century. So we now know with like modern science looking back that we were already warming the earth in the 1850s. But if you were you know, a person walking around in 1859 in London, you wouldn't have thought that the earth was warming. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't really until the 1890s that people started suggesting, ah, oh, well, if we did have an atmosphere with lots of carbon dioxide, it could get quite hot. And we do seem to be burning quite a lot of coal. They sort of twigged that maybe... And they thought in the future, we might warm the planet with all of this burning of coal. But that back then, they thought that it would be something way off into the future. So we sort of got this kind of, so as most science, it, it developed over time. So we kind of got a sense that, all right, humans could do it in the kind of 1890s. And there was a bit of sort of state of discussion in the media at the beginning of the 20th century about it. But it was a bit of a marginal view. And then in the 1930s, in 1938, a guy called Guy Callender, who was a, a British engineer, but was a bit into weather maths in his spare time. He used to spend his spare time just kind of looking at, at weather numbers and weather data. And he put together a lot of weather data he got from the Smithsonian of records of temperatures. And he worked out that the Earth had already warmed by about a third of a degree Celsius 
in the 40 years before that. So kind of basically the first four decades of the 20th century. And he connected that to the data we had then on, on carbon dioxide emissions and the theory of global warming that we we'd sort of established in the 1850s and went, mm, look, this is a thing. And initially he was kind of ignored. But then in the 1950s, post-war, some scientists went back to that. They had lots of, of extra resources. Uh, post-war, there was a lot more money in science. They had new technologies like computers and carbon dating that could let them do more research. And that was when we really established modern climate science. So I'd say we had kind of the basic theory in the 1850s. We had a kind of warning in the 1890s. And then it was the 1950s where we went, oh, whoops. And that's the birth of modern climate science. And the book starts, um, let's say going back to 1856, and this figure of Eunice Newton Foote, who I must confess I'd, I'd never heard of, but she seems rather sort of visionary figure now with sort of hindsight and the way her story's told. Can you tell us about her? Yes, yeah, so she was a woman who lived in New York State, middle class, uh, educated, really interested in science, a women's rights activist. Uh, when she had, in the last few years, people have kind of rediscovered her her role in the climate story. But before that, if she was remembered or thought about, she was recognised as kind of being a, a, a minor, playing a minor role in, in women's rights in the States. And yeah, she was really into science. So was her husband. Her husband was a lawyer, uh, but did sort of science in his spare time, which was slightly uh, more common back then. You know, na- nowadays, if you do science, you sort of have a job as a scientist. But back then there was, there were people who had jobs as scientists, but there were also people who just did it in their spare time. Um, and one day she decided she was interested in gases. So she just did some, some science at home, uh, looking at the way in which different gases would trap heat from the sun. And so she put some different test tubes on the windowsill and just let them heat up and see which ones heated up the most. And she found that the one containing lots of carbon dioxide really kept the heat, that it trapped the heat. And she wrote a paper which she presented uh, a big major American science conference that year on this saying, if we had an atmosphere full of carbon dioxide, it would get very hot. And looking back now, we're like, wow, that's so visionary. But at the time, she was just studying gases. She didn't realise how important it was. Now, she was a women's rights activist. Maybe she had a kind of campaigning sense. Maybe if she'd known the things that we now know, she would have campaigned around that. But you know, for people of the time, it wasn't. It didn't seem like a big deal. It seemed interesting. It seemed really interesting in terms of gases. And it was written up in, it was mentioned in Scientific American, major scientific magazine, and a couple of other places. And it was talked around a bit, and then it was forgotten. And we think that probably it was partly forgotten because she was a woman and people do often forget women's science, uh, but also because at the time it just didn't seem like a big deal. There was a man who came along a few years later and said almost exactly the same thing, which is that uh, kind of cliche that a woman sits in, in a board meeting and says something and everyone goes, that's very nice. And then a man says exactly the same thing and they go, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, this kind of happened to her. And that was a guy called John Tyndall, a British scientist. And now... Today, people are more and more recognising the role of Eunice Foote, but certainly if you talk to someone 10 years ago, they'd say, oh yeah, John Tyndall, he was the person who established the link between carbon dioxide and global warming. In terms of how we sort of talk about the ongoing problem, The Guardian recently changed their terminology to talk about the climate crisis rather than climate change. But you say in the book that there's an important difference between the two terms. How would you differentiate that? Well, yeah, when The Guardian did that, I I kind of really welcomed it because it kind of extended our vocabulary a bit. There's one way you could take that is you just go control find climate change and turn it to climate crisis. But I think that's something slightly different. I think one of the good things that what The Guardian did is they said, right, this thing that we're living through now is much more complicated than just larger trends of of climate change, the change in the climate, which is almost a scientific thing and something that can go back really far back in time and include periods when the earth was cooler as well as when it was hotter. Um, and is, is a sort of larger natural phenomena sometimes, as well as man-made phenomena. 
of which this specific thing that we're living through now, which is the climate crisis, is part of. And, and that's, for me, is uh, I'm telling my book is the story of the climate crisis, is quite a specific thing. If you wanted to talk about the history of climate change, then that's, that's an even bigger story. And that involves, you know, dinosaurs and, and ice ages, uh, which really is not something that is to do with this specific problem we have now, which is to do with burning fossil fuels and cutting down trees and our, our carbon problem. From your perspective, is there any way in which, and I'll choose my words carefully here, that the past year and a bit with COVID has been something of a boon in that it's sort of shown people a potential for collective action in the face of a crisis. It's perhaps broken habits about flying and driving everywhere. It's maybe got more people involved in community action. It might there be an odd way in which COVID is actually going to help us longer term with cracking this other problem. Possibly. I think it's definitely accelerated some trends in things like remote working and allowing people flexibility to work from home, which can potentially, depending on how you do it, have have a lot of, of benefits for, climate, for cutting carbon. Uh, it's definitely potentially up, disrupted how we think about going on holiday or getting around. And yeah, on the community action thing, when... Uh, COVID, when the lockdown started a bit over a year ago, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, like so much of my work is based on bringing people together and we can't bring anyone together for a tour on the other side of this. It's just going to mean that all of my work is going to be on hold. And then I saw people found all these other ways of, of coming together and actually, particularly their sense of community did shift. And so I'm quite hopeful that, yes, it could potentially, we could catch up on on a lot of the stuff that we had to put on hold the last year. We could catch up very rapidly in 2022. The other thing is that when COVID sort of started, I thought, oh, we've been talking about climate change loads more. It's really good. You know, everyone supports the youth strikers. It's just sort of, it's in the news. It's a, it's a thing again. After years of people kind of ignoring it, it's like, yes, we're going to start to do something. And then COVID happened. And I thought, oh, we're all just going to stop talking about this now. And everyone's going to talk about COVID. But what happened actually was the British public still taught, still kept on talking about climate change. The, if you look at polls, not only did our concern about climate change continue through COVID. If anything, it's grown. And so I think the British public in particular, this is true of lots of other countries around the world, really wants to make, you know, as we come out of of COVID and we think about how do we want to rebuild our world, wants to make climate action a big part of that and wants to to see really ambitious climate action uh, in the future. So, yeah, I guess in, in... I think I think in the short time, COVID has obviously caused a lot of things. You know, the climate talks in Glasgow were meant to happen last year. They're not going to happen again until until November. Um, and certainly a lot of my work in Possible has been put on hold. But I do think we'll catch up quickly. And there are these new opportunities. There are lots of new risks, though, as well. Um, we can't be complacent about that. I think the world has changed and that's brought new risks and new opportunities. And people like me who work in climate action are kind of assessing that and thinking about, right, how can we help? How can we make the most of those opportunities and how can we protect against those risks? But it's not a simple thing of like, oh, it's all great or it's all awful. It's just differently complicated. You've mentioned how from the point of view of technological solutions, you know, things like the renewable energy field have really outperformed expectation. Um, of the different elements of that, which technology do you think is closest to being the one that's going to make the next kind of leap forward? You know, which one is that? the tipping point where things suddenly get much cheaper and more efficient? Oh, it's difficult to say, like comparing, because they're actually very different types of technologies and they've been used in different ways. Like one of the things that's really interesting about wind in the last few years is we've gone from thinking like wind turbines, it's a pole with some sticks off the side that turns around and you might have it in the sea or you might have it on land. Actually, an onshore wind turbine on land is a completely different bit of tech from an offshore one. The offshore ones, these huge, incredible, amazing machines that power so so many houses in just one spin uh, and an onshore one would typically be a lot smaller but then might have, 
you know, might be owned by a local community and be able to power like a hospital that it's right next to. They're just used in different contexts. Somebody, you know, small scale solar and large scale solar, it's very different. Um, I think we, we can see both solar and wind are becoming so much cheaper so much, so rapidly. Uh, and it's really kind of taking a lot of the arguments for fossil fuels out of the way. But we still have big challenges in terms of transport. There's going to be quite a long time before we can have an, an electric plane that's going to be able to really compete with most of our, our air traffic, which just runs on oil. I think the big thing for probably your listeners will be a change is that they're probably quite used to talking about solar and wind, and they're going to start be talking about heat pumps a lot more. Probably maybe in the last year, learned what a heat pump is, and or maybe they haven't yet, and they're wondering what on earth I'm talking about. Maybe they can go and Google it. But that is a thing that I think you're going to be having conversations with your friends about heat pumps in the next few years. And that will be something that the cost of will come down pretty rapidly. Uh, you know, people are talking about the more than halving the cost of it in the next few years, just with some really canny investment and some thoughts about how we deploy it. I'm uh, yeah, looking forward to running my house off a uh, off a heat pump and uh, yeah, comparing the uh, comparing the prices. You've um, you've said in uh, when you were discussing there with alternative fuel sources, you've said the idea that um, quote electricity is going to be our saviour. That seems kind of counterintuitive when we think about you know moving away from sort of fossil fuels. Why why does electricity have that potential? Do you think? Well, the wonderful thing about electricity is that you don't need fossil fuels to create it. So one of the cha- one of the reasons why um, transport and heat are such challenges, particularly in, in the UK for heat, is that most of our heat is gas. Like probably most of your listeners ha- are will have heating that is gas, and it's a real challenge to rebuild all of our gas infrastructure so that it can be renewable. Um, whereas our electrical grid is a little bit more flexible. I mean, our electrical grid is really old and not as flexible as we want it to be, but it's a lot more flexible than our gas grid because you can make, you can feed into the electricity grid. Sometimes still a lot of electricity does come from gas and that's still a big challenge for us to totally kick fossil fuels out of our grid. But we've managed to successfully kick coal out of it really quite rapidly in the last few years. There's a lot of potential to kick gas out of it too, but we can have hydro and wind and solar and nuclear making our electricity. And so things like cars, which previously were just he had to run off petrol therefore oil if you've got an electric car you can charge it through through solar and this will be probably be you know how we will we'll see more and more things electrifying and you know, we've got we've been talking a lot of possible about possibilities for electric motorways and electric lorries and i was one of the nice thing one of the really surprising things i found when i was researching my book was we actually used to have electric lorries back in like the 1910s and world war one kind of stopped development on that and it was one of those historical routes we might have gone uh, gone down uh, but cars and even something as big as things moving um, haulage around used to be electrical. We're seeing more and more work with electric ships and, like I mentioned, the potential for electric planes. We, at the same time, do also need to make sure that our electricity isn't uh, isn't coming from burning gas and coal, but it it does provide us a lot more opportunities. Uh, And it has always done that. Like The first really big electrical project was renewable. It was hydro. It was Niagara Falls. I sometimes talk to other environmentalists and I go, oh, did you know there were electric lorries? There used to be electric minicabs in London um, back in the 1890s. The Science Museum's got one. It's beautiful. It looks like something that Sherlock Holmes would walk out of into the smoky streets. Um, and they sort of disappeared because the, the oil-based cars kind of took over and we're kind of going back to, to having electrics. And I say these things to these environmentalists and they go, oh yeah, but it's all made from coal. It's like, no, it wasn't actually. Like there was an electric bus you could take in, in Ireland that just ran off hydro. There were loads of electric trolley buses in America that ran off hydro. And the first really big electric project was was hydro. And uh, wind, you know, dates back to that period too. And we've always had those choices. So it's about making most of them now we know we, we really don't 
really have the choice of fossil fuels. When listeners hear about things like the EU Green New Deal and Biden's Green New Deal, what do they need to know? Um, we see these gigantic figures of trillions of dollars getting bandied around. I mean, what do they actually mean in terms of what's going to happen at a governmental level? Uh, well, I guess it's slightly more theoretical in terms of what's happening in the UK. It's there are there's a Green New Deal UK group which are uh, making lots of really important arguments about the need for kind of it, it fits in with the sort of build back better discourse. It's sort of like how do we how do we know just the kind of key insight you get with things like the Green New Deal is it's not just that we need to solve the climate problem. We also need to think about how solving the climate problem can also help us solve other problems, and how solving the climate problem won't create other more problems in itself because there is a version of how we tackle climate change which is that we make more people like Elon Musk much much richer uh, or that we solve climate change for a small number of people where whereas a lot of the rest of us just get left to put it plainly drown uh, while a few rich people in their solar powered insulated kind of rooftop buildings get to 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 be safe and thinking about the green new deal is thinking right how can we ensure that everybody is safe and how everybody is able to retrain it's not just about saying all right if you work in the oil industry silly you it's all right how if you work in the oil industry we need to we don't have that's not an industry that has a future how can we ensure that you have a future and you have a really exciting job so there's some really great work happening particularly around places like Aberdeen where my family are from, thinking about how, well, if you work in an offshore oil rig, how could those skills and expertise be applied to working in offshore wind? And we know that there's a lot of appetite for people who work, particularly in the offshore oil and gas industry, to think about how they can have training to retrain to work in renewables. Uh, similarly, people who work in, who currently work in the gas industry, well, if we say we can't burn gas to heat our homes, we can't just say that means that they're going to be left without a job. We need to ensure that they have training, that they have jobs, that they have a future. Um, otherwise, we'll end up doing what we did with stopping down coal. Like we stopped coal and we didn't do that for environmental reasons. We did it for economic ones, well, all sorts of political ones. We did that in a particularly bad way. And you can still see, like, I'm sure some of your listeners will remember when people were talking about patterns around COVID kind of about a year ago. You could see how that still mapped on to where the mines used to be in the UK because there's so much... In- entrenched still inequality around where mining towns are we can't have that with how we transform to tackle climate change we cannot do that again because it'll just create new problems and actually we'll probably end up causing more environmental problems as well as social and political ones so think about green new deal is like think about it holistically Um, and that i think is something that we need to be demanding more and more of our politicians in the uk as they start to make more you know they talk more warmly about climate action and they want to show themselves as green and particularly in the uk like the right wing will say oh, we're green. We're not like those American right-wingers who don't believe in climate change. You know, Thatcher was a climate activist and they like to talk all about that. And you're like, well, okay, well, how can we make sure we do it also in a way that doesn't leave people behind? Um, you know, look at your, you know, that red wall that they're trying to poke holes in. A lot of those people could well be helped by the Green New Deal. And there's an awful lot of appetite across the political spectrum in the UK for Green New Deal type policies. And just finally, your book concludes that while our ancestors might have left us both a great mess, they have also left us the necessary tools to dig our way out of it. So by your reckoning, when will we know if we're doing that right? I mean, climate change is slippery. It's that thing of it happening by degree in that we'll see different steps along that. We can, you know, map out steps that we want to see and see them hit. Like we are, we are getting rid of coal. Tick. Great that we're doing that right. And so but there isn't going to be a moment, just like there isn't going to be a moment where it's all over, there isn't going to be a moment where we're like, oh, we've won. It'll gradually kind of happen with us. And in many ways, one of the depressing things about climate change is that 
we've kind of already lost. And so we're just sort of mitigating losses from now on. And we will, it's more that we'll, we won't notice the devastation of it. By succeeding in not causing more devastation, we just won't have to deal with those problems. Uh, we can be able to sit back and, and kind of live our lives happily. Um, we don't get a gold star or a prize or some kind of award ceremony for doing it, sadly. Then maybe we would act more more quickly if, if we could see that kind of prize in our, in our eyesight to be able to run for. But as we transform to tackle climate change, there will be lots of other benefits that will come from it. You know, tackling climate change will definitely help improve air quality. We'll deal with all sorts of other kinds of pollution like noise pollution. And I think we'll really notice that. I think particularly action on transport will really make very tangible, obvious, noticeable differences to people's lives. If we do things like transformations uh, around energy that relate to like the Green New Deal stuff, we'll also see new jobs and we'll feel that. And I think that's a good thing about climate change is that attacking climate change is that we'll actually see immediate differences in other parts of our lives, as well as solving this abstract, slightly, well, slightly abstract, difficult uh, issue of climate change that doesn't give you a prize for having done anything for it. Alice Bell, thank you so much for joining me. You can pick up Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis from July the 8th online and at all good bookstores near you. Listeners, thank you for joining us too. Remember, there's a new bunker every Monday to Thursday plus a weekend edition and you can support us by backing us on Patreon, the crowdfunding network. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out about early episodes, our classy merch and ticket discounts for our debut live show. The Bunker versus Oh God, What Now? is at the Leicester Square Theatre on Tuesday, August the 10th. Tickets available at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.